This evening's readings come from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 to 29. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reference and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Good evening. Adrian, thank you so much for reading for us. Let me lead us in prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can gather now as uh, your family, as your children, uh, to hear you speak to us uh, through your word. We pray that you would uh, help us to enable us to concentrate on what you have to say to us. We pray that we wouldn't be distracted. Um, by anything, and we pray that you would give us soft hearts. Uh, we pray that you'd help us to, to appreciate, have a great appreciation tonight of how holy you are and of how mercy you, merciful you are. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. England are again in the semi finals of a major football tournament. Following their victory over Germany in the second round and then over Ukraine in the quarterfinals last night. They will now face Denmark in the semis in London. It has, of course, been a great run for England so far. But imagine for a second that Gareth Southgate and the players decided not to turn up at Wembley this coming Wednesday, thus forfeiting the match and crashing out of the tournament. And imagine that the captain, Harry Kane, gave the following reason for their no-show. We felt a bit tired, and to be totally honest... We also feel very content with having reached the semis. We didn't feel like it would be worth playing another game to try to reach the final. What would you make of that? I'm guessing you'd be shocked and even a bit angry, unless you're Scottish, in which, in which case you'd be loving it. It would make absolutely no sense for the team not to show up, right? Right? They've come so far, just one victory away from the final. Now, how on earth is this related to the passage we're thinking about this evening? In last week's passage, the author said, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. What mountain was he referring to there? He was referring to Mount Sinai in the Old Testament where the law was given. He says that that is not the mountain you and I have come to. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, what did the author mean by this? He was saying, realize where you are and look how far you've come. A bit later, he adds, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word 
than the blood of Abel. Blood of Abel, what is that about? What did the blood of Abel in the Old Testament call for? It called out for justice. And it did so because Abel was murdered by his brother Cain. The word Abel's blood spoke was justice. But what's the word that Jesus' blood speaks? Mercy. This is why Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the word than the blood of Abel. So here's what the author is doing. He's saying that Christians are those who receive mercy rather than the justice that their sin deserve, deserves. That's the privilege we have. And why is it that we can receive mercy? We can receive it because Jesus has suffered the justice for our sin on the cross. And Jesus is the faithful high priest who sacrificed himself for us so that we could be forgiven. Now, if Jesus has accomplished our forgiveness through the cross, how foolish would it be if we decided not to receive it, but instead to reject it? It would be infinitely worse than the England team choosing not to turn up to their semi-final at Wembley. England have come so far. They can't drop out now. Similarly, we have come so far. It would be mad to drop out. Now, there is, of course, a critical difference between us and the England team. England have earned their place in the semifinals. We have not earned our place on Mount Zion. We have not earned our forgiveness. Our forgiveness is a gift from God. It is God's mercy to us. But I hope you see the similarities and and get the points I'm making. We've come so far. It would be mad to chuck it all away now. Brothers and sisters, God has shown us incredible mercy. So here's the question we're thinking about today. How are we to respond to God's mercy? How are we to respond to God's mercy? Look at what the author says in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. It's interesting that the author says, don't refuse him who speaks. What is the author doing here? He wants us to connect what he's saying here with what he's just said in the previous verse about the blood that speaks. What did we see that Jesus' blood speaks? Mercy. So, So what is God who speaks through his son speaking? He's speaking mercy. So if we refuse God's mercy, we refuse what he's speaking, we refuse God. So how are we to respond to God's mercy? Don't refuse it and thereby refuse God. That's our first point. Don't refuse God who speaks mercy. Don't refuse God who speaks mercy. Now what does it look like to refuse God's mercy? For the original recipients of this letter, it would have looked like returning to Judaism. It would have looked like trying, looked like returning to Try, trying to be saved by following the Old Testament law instead of relying on God's mercy. That is, instead of relying on Christ's finished work on the cross. 
But what does it look like for us to refuse God's mercy? I don't imagine that many of us here are tempted to become Jewish. It might be helpful to first think about what might have caused a Jewish Christian to be tempted to to abandon Christ and return to Judaism. What do we think might have persuaded them to do that? Or they'd need to believe that they could do without Jesus' blood. They need to believe that Jesus' death for them was unnecessary. Have you ever been tempted to doubt that you need to carry on relying on Jesus' death? Let me ask that again. Have you ever been tempted to doubt that you need to carry on relying on Jesus' death? I have. And if you've never had the temptation, I suspect that you will one day. You'll be tempted to put your trust in other things rather than in the cross. Sadly, over the past five years or so, there's been a number of high-profile Christians who've renounced Jesus. Many of them have come come out, so to speak, on their social media accounts, where they open up about how they've deconstructed their faith. Listen to the words of one of them, who tearfully said, I'm not a Christian anymore, and it feels really good. I'm really happy. I'm in a really good spot, probably the best spot of my life. I'm so full of joy for the first time. I love my life for the first time. I love myself for the first time. When you hear those words, it's it's hard not to feel some sympathy towards this man. It's, it's a tragedy that he feels like he's only experiencing joy now and love for himself now as an ex-Christian. But what has this man believed? He's believed that Christ and his cross are dispensable. He's believed that what matters most is his own joy and that that is best found outside of Christ. What has he done? He's refused God's mercy. He feels like he doesn't need it. Indeed, he feels happier without it. As a side note, note, it does make me wonder, uh, did this guy really know Christ if he feels happier without him? As I thought about the things that he said, um, I love my life for the first time. Actually, when I became a Christian, that's when I started to love my life. That's when I started to love myself, when I actually saw that I'm a child of God. Then I actually reappreciated who I am. That's when I found myself in a really good spot. It does make me wonder, did this guy really know Jesus? Why is it so dangerous to choose to be without Christ? Why is it so dangerous to refuse him? Because we end up refusing God's mercy and we end up refusing God. And God doesn't want that for us. Look at how the the author persuades us of this in, in verse 25. Halfway through verse 25. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? What does... 
God do to convince us not to refuse his mercy? He warns us, and he warns us from heaven. While the Jews at Mount Sinai were warned through Moses, who was on earth, we are warned through the risen Christ, who is in heaven. It is through him that God now speaks. Remember Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Friends, God is speaking to us through Christ and he's warning us. Why? Because there's a judgment coming. Just as those who ignored God's warning in the wilderness were subsequently judged and failed to enter the promised land, so too will we if if we ignore God's warning by refusing Christ, by turning away from him. God is warning us from heaven because he wants us to escape the coming judgment. Why does he want to do that? Look with me at how the judgment is described in verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. What will the coming judgment look like? It'll be cataclysmic. Not only will the earth be shaken, but the heavens too. It'll be like an earthquake and a heavenquake, so to speak. This is emphasizing the comprehensiveness of the judgment. An earthquake is one of the most terrifying things a town or city can experience. This, this quake, this shaking, is going to affect the whole cosmos. Where will, we, where will we turn for refuge when this shaking happens? Friends, Christ is our only hope. It is only his blood that can shelter us from this judgment. Do you see the greatness of God's mercy towards us? Do you see why he warns us? The end of verse 27 tells us uh, one of the aims of the shaking. It says, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. What is it that cannot be shaken? Verse 28 says that it's a kingdom. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, what does that mean? In verse 27, the author cites a passage from the Old Testament, namely Haggai chapter 2. And in that passage, God says, I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall. What did God say he would shake? Kingdoms. The Jews in the Old Testament were often admonished for putting their trust and hope in foreign kingdoms rather than in God. And so here's the point. Putting your trust in a foreign kingdom is a dead end. It will be shaken. 
It will not last. So it will not keep you safe. Similarly, putting your hope in the fact that you feel really happy without Christ, rather than putting your hope in him, will not keep you safe. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be happy, but if you're tempted to feel like you don't need God's mercy just because you feel really happy without it, doesn't mean that you're not going to experience a shaking. The only thing that cannot be shaken is God's kingdom. So we need to heed that warning so that we do not refuse God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, God is warning us because he wants us to receive his mercy. He warns us because he cares about us. A loving parent warns their child about the dangers of playing with a carving knife, not because they don't love them, but precisely because they do. So let's not refuse God and his mercy. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now we've considered the the negative imperative. Don't refuse God who speaks mercy. But there's also a positive imperative. Look at how the author says we should live in verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. How should we respond to God's mercy? By being thankful. Our second point is be thankful to God. Be thankful to God. People are often divided as to what they believe is best for a country or kingdom, aren't they? So you'll find different opinions as to whether Catalonia should leave Spain. You'll find different opinions as to whether Scotland should leave the UK. And you'll find different opinions about Brexit. People rarely agree as to what is best for a country or kingdom. But God's kingdom is different, isn't it? Because it is infinitely superior to any earthly kingdom, and this is one kingdom that all Christians can agree on, as to what is best for it. We can all agree that we do not want this kingdom to collapse or to be shaken in any way. This kingdom is one that has thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. This kingdom is is one whose inhabitants have been made righteous, who no longer have the power and presence of sin corrupting them. This kingdom is one that is ruled by the king who doesn't exploit its inhabitants but loves them enough to lay down his own life in order to save them. This is the one kingdom Christians can agree should not be shaken. And God promises that it won't be. You see, a referendum can't shake this kingdom. A military coup can't shake this kingdom. Not even the death of the king can shake this kingdom. This kingdom doesn't fall with the king's death. It is founded on the king's death. 
Friends, we have an unshakable kingdom. So we have reason to be thankful. There's one more reason I want us to see why we should be thankful. Have a look at verse 28. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. When's the last time you heard, when's the last time you, um, you thought of or described God as a consuming fire? The author wants us to remember God's holiness. Without God's mercy to us in Christ, because of our sin, we would be destroyed by God's holiness. Now, many people find this idea a bit uncomfortable. But God's holiness is who he is. It's what makes him distinct from us. And his holiness, although it is dangerous, it is also good. We might compare God's holiness a little bit to to the heat of the sun. Although if we get too close to the sun, we'll burn up. We are also fully reliant upon the sun, aren't we? Without the sun, we would not have life. In a similar way, because God is holy, unless he makes a way for us to approach him, we will burn up if we get too close. But just as we depend on the sun for life, we also depend on God. In him, we live and move and have our being. The author of Hebrews has said earlier in the letter that God is the one who creates and sustains all things and that he does so through Christ. Do you see God as a consuming fire? As the one upon whom our lives depend, but also as the one who can obliterate us through his holiness. I discovered this week that the BBFC, the British Board of Film Classification, decided last month that films where either God's name or Jesus' name are used in vain can receive a U rating, with the the U standing for universal and meaning that they are fit for children without the need for parental guidance. Other words uh, that are allowed in the U category are words like jerk and butt. So to the, BBC, to the BBFC, using God's name in vain, using Jesus Christ's name in vain, is only as bad as saying the word jerk. Does it sound like the BBFC believe that God is a consuming fire? Because the society we live in has such a casual view of God, We need to be careful that we don't inadvertently adopt it too. The lack of reverence to God is in the air we breathe. So we need to guard against it. Just because people like Trevor Noah, the presenter of The Daily Show, talk about God as if he were his roommate with whom he occasionally grabs a Budweiser, doesn't mean that we should too. Friends, our God is holy. He's a consuming fire. 
Yet he has shown us tremendous mercy. He's speaking to us and lovingly warning us. So let's not take his mercy for granted and refuse it. Rather, let's be thankful to God for it and for the unshakable kingdom we are receiving. We are so close, it would be mad for us to refuse God now. We'd miss out on much more than just a final in Wembley. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are receiving a, an unshakable kingdom. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for how it reminds us um, of your holiness. That says that you are a consuming fire. Father, we thank you that despite the fact that you are consuming fire, you show us mercy and you do not consume us in a way that our sin deserves. We thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for sending him. Thank you that he willingly took the judgment for our sin. Father, we pray that you'd help us now as we have communion. We pray that as we, as we share in taking the, the bread and, and the wine, we pray that we would remember uh, just what the, the cross achieved. We pray that remind us of your, of your holiness and of your mercy to us in Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.